launching in 2015 by the Writing and Literacies Communication Team. Writing and Literacies on Air is a three-part podcast series providing an added medium to highlight scholarship, discuss contemporary issues, and engage in conversation with other SIG members and the greater writing and literacies community. Throughout the year we will release podcasts in hopes of building anticipation and momentum leading up to the annual Spring Conference. Thanks. Here my home project pause John Wargo and Cassie Brownell whose opening soundscapes and ambient acoustics you heard opening our second podcast. Today on Writing and Literacies on Air, we have the distinct pleasure and honor to speak with two collaborative teams engaging in communities-based literacies research. The first team we talked to includes Dr. Valerie Kinlock, Professor of Literacy Studies in the Department of Teaching and Learning and the Director of the Office of Diversity and Inclusion in the College of Education and Human Ecology at The Ohio State University. Working alongside of Dr. Kinlock is Ms. Rhonda Johnson, former President of the Columbus Education Association and currently the Education Director for the City of Columbus and the Mayor's Office. The second team we had the opportunity to dialogue with is comprised of Dr. Joanne Larson, Michael W. Scandling Professor of Education and Chair of the Teaching and Curriculum Program at the University of Rochester. Joining Joanne is Daniel Hart, Literacy Specialist and Community Partner at East High School. Joining these two groups is Dr. Anna Smith, IES Postdoctoral Fellow in Writing and New Learning Ecologies at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign and current Communication Chair for the Special Interest Group. I'm John Wargo, currently a doctoral candidate in teacher education at Michigan State University. Entitled Writing Towards Diverse Democracies Through Public Scholarship, our podcast today serves writing and literacy scholarship as it pertains to AERA's annual conference theme. We will be discussing public scholarship, engagement, and community partnerships. As a series of podcasts, we hope to engage in fruitful dialogue concerning the public question for the SIG as the AERA annual meeting turns 100. So first, Valerie and Rhonda, thank you so much for joining us today. Would you please introduce yourselves and tell us a little bit about your current or previous work together? Sure. Rhonda, would you like to go first? Sure. Um, I met Valerie um, when I was president of the Columbus Education Association uh, because of a grant that um, the CEA received um, with the National Education Association through the Corporation for National and Community Service. And the NEA wanted to work with uh, a a local union that had um, uh, partnerships, proven partnerships with universities to do this work. And so we were chosen um, uh, by the um, National Education Association to be the local to, to work on this grant around service learning. And because of our long relationship with uh, the Department of, of uh, the, with the College of Education and Human Ecology, we work with Dr. Sandy Stroot, and she introduced me to Dr. Valerie Kinlock. She said, this is the person you want doing this work with you. She has the experience you're going to love working with Valerie. Um, she's going to help you to have this, these really great outcomes for teachers and for kids. And so that's when I got a chance to, to meet Valerie was through this grant that the NEA uh, received um, that put that right in um, uh, the Columbus City Schools and the Columbus Education Association. 
Yes, and building off of what Rhonda Johnson just said, you know, as the then current president of the Columbus Education Association, Rhonda was really instrumental in helping us to form and sustain this educational partnership. We were able to work with different um, teachers in Columbus City Schools, different principals who allowed us the opportunity to bring this critical service learning and community engagement grant into their buildings as well as different local nonprofit organizations and Ohio State University. And so working with Rhonda alongside other members of the Columbus Education Association was just really important for having different groups of people in the city understand why such a partnership, especially around education and service learning and community engagement, was really instrumental. Thanks, that's great. Um, Valerie, I'm, I'm interested in why critical service learning, and particularly like what brought you to that interest in in your work in literacies research? That's a great question. Um, and so overall, I would say my work has really focused on the intersections of looking at young people's literacy identities, literacy practices, and engaged forms of community participation in an out-of-school context. And so when I think about what my work has historically focused on in relation to critical service learning, I think I was really interested in this partnership because of a number of reasons. Number one, it allowed me an opportunity to really get a better understanding of the union in Columbus, the Columbus Education Association, which is the largest teachers' union in the state of Ohio. And then we have our school district, which is the Columbus City Schools, which is a large school district, urban-focused, in the city. And we have Ohio State University's College of Education and Human Ecology, which is a really, it's a large land-grant institution. And so when I think about the possibilities of critical service learning, bringing these different entities and groups of people together to think critically about power and social justice and literacy, and not just literacy, but thinking about STEM education, thinking about social studies and history, physical education and health, thinking about the ways in which art and art teachers are really a part of the work that we do inside of our schools and in communities, critical service learning because we get to talk about power. We get to talk with community partners about what they think needs to be improved in their communities, and we get to engage young people in this process of really having a hands-on approach to trying to figure out solutions to community issues. And so... I, I sometimes go back and forth with talking about critical service learning alongside community engagement because the critical part of service learning is all about power and understanding power dynamics, but also understanding the ways in which power is really important for us to have critical conversations about learning and participation in schools and in communities. And then community engagement really gets me to think about forming reciprocal, mutually beneficial partnerships with different groups of people in the community around identified community concerns. And I think that's what this critical service learning project that Rhonda and I have been partners on for a few years has really gotten us to think about and do. And and for for teachers, it gave them a voice, a different voice that they didn't necessarily know that they had, along with giving students um, a, a voice. Um, it, it gave teachers an opportunity to see students in a different light, different from what they would see actually in the classroom. They got to engage with their kids on a totally different level in their own communities and doing work in their communities. And one of the beautiful things about it was, um, that 
the teachers in Columbus who probably didn't know each other who participated in this grant became a professional learning community around um, service learning, not just community service. We often do community service, and we it's a one and done, let's raise some money to do this or that, but it's really not about about learning. Um, and so this was this was a, a, a game changer for for us here in Columbus to think about service learning, not just you know community service, but actually doing the work in our own community. This, this project changed the lives for some of our kids. Uh, if you ever get a chance, you should take a look at the videos from from the the NEA when we did this project about a girl who was in one of the classes on a design team for their project who didn't have any friends in the school and now this girl is now friends with a drill team girl which they're the most popular kids in the school and um mm-hmm. And now they're they're best friends, and now this girl says, "I want to be a teacher because I know I can make a difference in you know a child's life." So it goes beyond just that the the partnership. It just it changes lives, and 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 kids were able to express themselves in so many different ways. The pro- the particular project that I'm talking about was in uh, an English class, and so kids got a chance to put forth their voice um, through, um, you know, through literacy, whether it's reading or writing or performing or doing. Um, So it it was just a really powerful, as Valerie alluded to, uh, and she said, it's about power and having, you know, and having a voice. It it was, you you hear the excitement in in, uh, my voice because I believe it's the best project that I did or that we had an opportunity to participate in uh, the 10 years that I was the CEA president. And so when I hear Rhonda talk about the critical service learning project and how, you know, there is a distinction between thinking about engaging in volunteer work and thinking about engaging in the community and having learning as a central part of that, when I hear Rhonda talk about that, and then I think about your own um, your own history with the district in terms of teaching and then being president of the union and now being the education director, I think how can we continue to capitalize on these professional learning communities? And what is the significance of this work for not just the partnerships, as you said, that form from this work, but also the ways in which young people were radically engaged in their communities in their schools, working alongside peers whom they've never really associated with before and realizing we all make a difference. And then having teachers feeling as if, you know what, we could actually set aside our preconceived notions of what teaching and learning is all about and really give students an opportunity and space to define the kind of work and the kind of engagement that they want. And so sharing power with our students from teachers to students, having principals say, you know what, this is working, let's do it, let's think about learning in a different way, and then having our community partners say, you know what, I will give you this space to create this urban garden, and let's see what happens. Or having another community partner say something um, like, you know, come and visit our facilities, and let's talk about ability, and let's talk about rewriting that narrative that we have about special needs or disability and really thinking about the rights of all people. And getting to that point where we're using a humanizing language to talk about teaching and learning and who people are, I really think those were central 
elements of this partnership. The other thing, too, Valerie, um, that we need to mention, though, is that there was actually a course taught by you at The Ohio State University to help teachers with this. Uh, You know, we can't just hand teachers work off and just expect them to be able to do it. We have to create the professional learning community that I talked about, but that course help them to be able to do that. I mean, your work helped them to be this professional learning community, bringing people in from all parts of the city uh, and from, uh, we usually think about high school students as doing service learning, but you know, with our project, we had elementary and middle school students uh, in, in our work. So having that having that course at Ohio State University where teachers would have that space to to grow and to develop is just so important. So we can't leave that out of the equation, the importance of having them all together and to be led by a a person like you, um, I mean, who's you know, who internalizes uh, this work and, and, um, and helps to make this special because I know that this, this comes from, I know that this comes from within you and this is your passion. And um, I, I'm really happy to say we had to turn teachers away. <laughs> you know, this, this class was oversubscribed. It was a brand new class and you know that you work in higher ed. You, you know, when you do something new, um, Sometimes people pay attention and sometimes people don't, but this was one that was oversubscribed and we had to limit it to uh, a small number of uh, of people. But uh, I think it's something that we should continue to do and that we ought to find ways that we can continue to do this work in schools because this makes the work to me relevant for what teachers are doing in classrooms every single day with their kids. It gives them a glimpse of what happens in that particular child's life. And, and that, that I can see differently working in my role as director of education. Before I was in mainly in schools and now I'm working in neighborhoods and I'm seeing, I'm seeing some issues that are different than what, what I thought. Uh, you know, it, a child isn't just what happens in school. A child is a product of what happens in that particular neighborhood. So our work, too, here at the city is to help people in their neighborhoods. And then, you know, our, and our kids want to get back, give back to their own neighborhoods, and we have to help them to be able to do that. I am so glad you mentioned that, that course in particular, because I think every time you and I talk about this work, I tend to leave the course behind. I, I put more emphasis on the partnership and how we created this partnership, how we develop professional learning communities with different teachers in the district, and how we brought different types of students into this work in ways where, you know, they were able to assert their sense of agency. And yet there was that course. And, you know, just for some context, it was a course that I designed on critical service learning theories and practices. And we had, I believe, three cohorts of teachers across K-12, across subject matters and content areas, who registered for this course. And I think we had between 30 and 40 teachers per cohort. And so they met for a three-credit-hour graduate-level course, and we met at each course, each session of the course was held at a different community site or a local school. 
And so teachers did not necessarily have to come to Ohio State, but we were purposefully in communities and inside of elementary and middle and high schools and walking this journey of thinking about critical service learning with different people, including students who we invited into the course to actually do some co-teaching. And so that course was really important. And I think part of this work is for us to begin to think about how can we take a course like that one, the Critical Service Learning Theories and Practice course, and maybe begin to reshape it in a way where we're continuing to think deeply about these professional learning communities and thinking about literacy and language and engagement in ways where the work continues and somehow we're sustaining the work that we started by continuing on with this course and inviting in different people to maybe co-teach it. I like your focus on communities and neighborhoods and the work that you're doing right now, Rhonda, and I think there might be something in that work that would attach really nicely to the work that we've done with this course and with the partnership that I'd like to explore. When I think about when I think about like the particular interactions that have emerged from this work and that stick with me, I think about, you know, the fact that this partnership was across all five of the regions that we had in the district. And so teachers were coming from all of these different neighborhoods, all of these different schools. And it wasn't just about how are you teaching, how are you engaging students in the classroom, but it was really about, okay, let's take a moment and think about what we're doing in our classrooms and how what we're doing in our classrooms alongside our students should connect with who our students are when they're not inside of our classrooms or inside of our schools. And so that focus that you just talked about in terms of really working in neighborhoods, in the Linden and Hilltop neighborhoods in particular, to think about who students are beyond the time of school and when they're in school, but also to think about the larger network of people who support them, their parents, their families, their guardians, their friends, and who they are. I think those things are natural extensions of the work that we started. Um, and I think, for me, that would be really, really promising to continue to do that work, but now to sort of shift our focus. Thank you both for sharing what, you know, I think it, the conversation really helps clarify the difference between community service and service learning and critical service learning as a way to humanize teaching and learning. Uh, it also helps clarify how many moving parts there are in this work and how much forethought and support it takes across multiple stakeholders. Um, we want to sort of shift the conversation a little bit and think a little bit, um, you know, Valerie, nearly 10 years ago, you worked with a group of young men and women in considering the intersection of identities, lives, and literacies in what became the 2012 AERA Outstanding Book of the Year, Harlem on Our Minds, Place, Race, and the Literacies of Urban Youth. Can you tell us a little bit about how that work began and the interest that brought you together with the youth involved in the study? Yes, I can. So... Harlem on Our Minds did win the 2012 Outstanding Book of the Year from AERA. And in many ways, that was a surprise to me because I think we go into the work and we do the work because our souls and our spirits move us to do this kind of work and the work of engaging with young people, learning from and with young people, and really understanding who we are as researchers, as teachers, as human beings, trying to make a difference with other people in the world. And so when I think about Harlem on our minds, um, you know, it was a special time because I was still in New York City. I was working as a faculty member at Teachers College, and I was going into the Harlem community in a particular high school. And initially I went into this high school to work with new teachers 
who um, were in their first year, year and a half of teaching in this school, and I wanted to see what they were doing. I wanted to offer support. And that quickly turned into, you know, I love working with young people. And so having conversations in the hallways, having conversations in classes with young people about reading and writing and thinking about literacy and thinking about who they are quickly turned into an interview with one of the participants in Harlem in Our Minds, Philip. And during one of our interviews, I, I thought the interview was going to be on, tell me something about your reading and writing practices. And he looked at the camera and he said, so can we go ahead and get this interview done because what we really need to talk about is what's happening outside there. And he pointed outside of the school building and in the community. And I said, you know what, we're not having an interview on reading and writing. Let's talk about what you think is happening in the community. And that quickly turned into a conversation about community change, about spatial reappropriation, and hence about gentrification, and how so many young people, particularly people of color, oftentimes feel excluded from these larger debates about gentrification. You know, what's happening to community spaces? How are some people a part of the decision-making processes and how other people feel as if they're excluded? And so listening to Philip and then his peer, Kalik, and then Damon, and then someone who I was working with, Rebecca, and then Mrs. L, and all of these other people coming into this conversation that I thought was going to be just a 10-minute interview and realizing that we have a lot of stories that are untold about community, about literacy, about out-of-school literacies, about gentrification. And so that's really how the work started. And then it took us on a journey of let's up the ante. Let's actually figure out what's going on in the community. Let's meet on Saturdays or on Monday evenings or on Thursday afternoons and let's have video cameras and let's walk the community. So at the time, I lived in Harlem and the two participants in particular lived in Harlem. And so we would just walk the community with our videos, and we would narrate different stories about what we recalled being there before and now what we saw coming that many people just could not afford. And that's how that study started. It was really a, an attempt to take a moment to work with and create something alongside young people and their teachers and community members to respond to gentrification, but also to bring our responses back into a school context to say, why are we not studying community change? Why are we not engaging in our communities? And why are young people not having opportunities to engage in transformative projects that take all of us into the community? That's a, that's a powerful idea to really honor that work and think about that. And, and it's also in terms of the importance of learning from and with those who, in some of our traditional approaches in educational research, would otherwise be limited to, like you said, a 10-minute interview participant. Um, but now, like you said, with Philip in particular, you're still learning with him and from him exactly. in this work. It's very powerful. Um, Rhonda, uh, you too have extensive experience partnering and learning from and with different groups, and it sounds like organizations as well, um, for this project of bettering education in a real sense in our neighborhoods and in our communities. Um, and I'm wondering what lessons um, you might have taken from this work that you would pass on to educational researchers. You know what, I'm I'm going to pass on what Valerie really talked about. And, you know, mm -hmm. it's the, the research taking place in the place and in the space and in the neighborhood. If you're in your office, 
then that's not the right work. You know, you have to be engaging with people outside your organization. What I do know is that as a union you and as a school district, you cannot do this work alone. You need partners from, you know, even those you don't typically think of being your partners, and you need critical friends. So I would just pass on the advice of developing relationships and networking and being in the room and being at the table where decisions are made um, and, uh, and, and, and being a voice for those who might feel that they don't have a voice or they're afraid to express themselves and being the voice for children because it's really not about the individual it is about the work and it's, and and it's uh, it's about the it's about students it's about all of all of our stakeholders here in the city but it is really it's it's relationship business that's that's what we do it's people business but if you don't have relationships you cannot do that work uh and you have to uh, you have to maintain those relationships over time so reg- regardless of who the dean is at the Ohio State University College of Education, we still have to work with the next dean and the professors. We have to maintain those relationships. We just have to keep the work going so that it's not just not just a, a, a great people but a great organization that we leave. And so my advice is really just going back to having the relationships and being out in the community to do your work because that is your work. Your work is not in the office. And I have to underscore that because something that you always remind me of, Rhonda, is the idea that we have to be present. And if we're not present, then what is our commitment to the work that we claim to be committed to? And And then you also talk a lot about forming relationships with people in communities and in schools. And something that I've seen you do and that I try to do myself, but I really look at you for this, is this idea of forming relationships that are meaningful, relationships that don't just get us somewhere, but that are genuinely committed to who people are, who people are in different communities, and really trying to understand what their needs are as opposed to imposing our beliefs on other people. And I really appreciate that because if we're present and if we're committed to forming relationships, then those relationships don't end if a project ends. Those relationships continue. And so that's, that's really important for me. We took up this question of relationships and traveled from Columbus, Ohio to Rochester, New York, and heard from Dr. Joanne Larson and Daniel Hart. So, Joanne and Dan, would you please introduce yourselves and tell us a little bit about your current or previous collaboration and work together? My name is Joanne Larson. I'm a faculty member at the Warner Graduate School of Education and Human Development at the University of Rochester. And I've been working with Dan in particular uh, since we, for a few years, some in my classes at Warner and also in the National Writing Project, but more recently in our partnership at East High School um, since the university has become a partner in running the school. And I am Daniel Hart. I work at East High School. Um, I am a literacy specialist here for the ninth grade for the Freshman Academy. Um, 
I graduated from Warner in May, and Joanne was my first professor at the University of Rochester. Uh, I've been teaching off and on, subbing, doing practicum placements for about five years, uh, but this is my first full-time position. Joanne, can you tell us a little bit about the project that's going on there? Well, How it started? Quite, yeah, it's quite remarkable. It started um, in 2014 when the president of the school board actually called me on a Saturday to say, would you be interested, you meaning the university, be interested in um, becoming an educational partnership organization for the school east? Um, I, of course, said yes, but it's not my decision. So I introduced them to my dean, and there was lots of back and forth with, no, we're not going to do it, yes, we're going to do it, no, we're going to do it, until the president of the university got involved and uh, agreed, and, and, and we started that process. Educational Partnership Organization is a unique, as far as I can find, uh, legal status in New York State uh, for um, an organization, and they have definitions of what that organization can be, partners with the school to, to, to basically become its own district, kind of a district within a district. So we have our own superintendent and principals, et cetera, um, teachers, everything uh, that report to the school board, not to the central office of the district. We're also um, what's called a receiver, which is also a new status in New York State, where the um, university then uh, has financial um, responsibility and can make decisions without going to the school board. So uh, I have been unable to find anything in the literature uh, that talks about this kind of organization and, and partnership. So we feel like we're forging new territory, but very hopeful about its potential. And it was really interesting being at Warner throughout the process of them applying for the EPO because all the faculty was involved. Um, there was a lot of excitement. They were all very busy. Mm -hmm. And uh, the students were also pretty excited too because it was a lot of potential for what could happen and what ideals we could try to carry out. Yeah, so that sounds like um, really exciting um, work, and it also sounds like a lot of work. And so I guess kind of on a personal level, why why did you take this on? And and for Dan, you too, like what drew you to see, to teach in this space? For me, it's really um, a life or death issue that um, to have an opportunity to help. The school was going to close, first of all. And there are about 15, at the time, there were about 1,500 students who would be shuffled around to various other schools. Uh, Rochester is the lowest performing school district in New York State, highest child poverty in the nation for similar sized cities highest concentrated poverty in the nation for similar sized cities. Uh, lowest, we had only, we have a dismal graduation rate, especially for African American males. Uh, at one point a couple of years ago, it was only 4% of the African American males were graduating. 
So I thought this was a justice issue that I, I absolutely could not ignore. And I said as much at university meetings when people were going, well, it's so much work. Well, I said, look, how could we, we can't say no. We're a school of ed that says we have a social justice mission. Uh, what? You know, yes, we have to do it. So for me, it was our catchphrase is kind of all in all the time. And I went for it. I, I, I put my son here. My son goes to East, right? I said, all right, I'm doing it. And uh, so it's, I'll, you know, Dan can answer for himself, but I find, too, that it's also more work than I ever imagined. And I knew it would be a lot of work, but I, I really had no idea. So I'll let Dan answer for why he came. I mean, I can second that. For sure, it was and is a ton of work. Uh, for me, I can think back to when I was 18 and I was thinking about what I wanted to do with my life, and I didn't really have a clear direction, but I knew I wanted to be an activist of some sort. Um, so then I went to undergrad and I found my way into an education program. So I got my bachelor's in English and adolescent education. And even after that, I wasn't sure what kind of teacher I wanted to be. So I taught here and there. I got into the field of public health and um, a couple other side jobs. Um, and it wasn't until I actually had an uh, information session at Warner and I found out about what a literacy teacher actually was and what I could do with literacy that I decided that that's the kind of activism that I wanted to go into. I mean, you need literacy for everything. You need to be able to read and write and interact with the world. And I thought, I know that that's what I want to do, and this is the population that I wanted to do it with. Just like Joanne was saying, it's a very high-needs district. And I grew up in the city. I went to city schools, so it had that extra element of personal attachment for me. And as I've been going through and as I've been working here, I'm really seeing how I'm changing people's lives, how I'm helping people you know, come to understand what literacy is and what it can do. And especially for the students who are struggling readers, I'm helping them become more confident. And it's just the kind of work that I know I want I wanted to do and I've always known I wanted to do. I I've been very excited to have see Dan come to East and bring his unbelievable passion for the youth and for literacy. Um, I am lucky enough to be able to be in his classroom doing research, and I've gotten to know one of his classes pretty well. In fact, uh, two of his students, I don't know if you, were, you know this, um, are coming to AERA as part of a presidential, presidential session that we're doing on East. So... Two of his students in the class that I've been in will be presenting with their mom. That's great. And it sounds like for both of you, your pathways into the project and work are so personal. Um, and I'm curious, can you tell us a little bit about the relationship part, the relationships that have developed through this work and if there are any particular interactions that have stuck with either of you or are influencing your work day to day currently? Yeah, I mean, I, for me, and we all know this, yeah, it, it's 
always all about the relationship, and um, so do, and and it's part of what's hard is or the hard work being done is that to have real, authentic, and trusting relationships, you have to open your heart and you have to show up and you have to be there, uh, good, bad, and ugly, and tell each other the truth and all of those things. And that takes time and courage even. But there are... So the moments that stand out to me are really small, right? So a kid who is chronically absent and skips class or whatever, you know, you get to know them, you learn about their life, they pass you on the hallway and go, hey, miss, fist bump, you know? Or um, so those kind of quiet moments where you have a, a, a face-to-face connection, even if it's just for a second, of a smile or a look or, you know, or, you know, hey, miss, the other day I walked into a classroom I've been in and that this young woman I've gotten to know said, oh, there's my favorite teacher. I thought, okay, it's all worth it. That's it, right? So I don't know, Dan, how about you? Um, at East, every single faculty member, every single person on the staff has a family group. And so every day, either after or before lunch, depending on where it fits in your schedule, the scholars have a 30-minute block of time where they just come and we talk about important things. We talk about their grades. We talk about their lives, their families, uh, whatever is relevant to them. But the goal is also mostly to have fun. Um, We share meals. We share TV programs if it's a Friday and we feel like relaxing. Um, But it's the goal of family group was to create relationships in the school and to build relationships not only between faculty and students, because that's definitely happening, but also between the students themselves, because they may not necessarily spend time or talk about these things outside of family group or with the same people that are in their family group. And it's always meaningful to me when I see students in my family group talking to each other and like supporting each other outside of family group. Because I always wonder, you know, maybe they were friends before, but maybe they weren't. So it's a great opportunity for them to have become closer in a low pressure setting so that they can take that relationship outside. And also one of the cool things, I think it's cool, that we do in my literacy class is I insist that all my students publish in some way Um, And it can be publication online, it can be performance, it can be in print. And so I provide that opportunity for my students. And we've had two poetry slams, well, four poetry slams at two separate occasions throughout the year. And I've seen students really come into themselves as literate individuals and, and create that as part of their identity when they get up and read a piece that they've written in front of an audience that's more than just their classmates or, or me. And I also have the Freshman Academy newsletter that I publish every month where I take students, they, they give me their writing and I put it in the newsletter. And one of the coolest things that happens is that students take these newsletters and they, they say, I need to take three or four of these home to my family. Mm-hmm. And I say, well, of course, you can do that. And it's, it's really 
essential to give them that opportunity to see their own voice and their own words in print in a publication that is going out to the rest of the school. And I really see them come into their own, and I feel like that really solidifies their relationships that we're trying to build. Yeah, that's really beautiful. And I'm excited to to hear about this also from the youth themselves and, and their did you, did you say mom? <laughs> um, yes, the whole family exactly. that we get to hear from. Yeah, that's a beautiful, so we, that's a, we often don't hear from, from families at AERA. And um, so the, I'm excited to hear that that's a presidential session. I was thinking, Joanne, um, through this work uh, that um, is bringing together um, youth and teachers and, um, and families, um, parents and um, all together, and, and, and also through your previous work that you've been doing, what have you learned about organizing this kind of collaborative, collaborative work um, where interests are not just shared but also differ in important ways? Um, what kind of lessons would you pass on? Oh, my goodness. Um, I think it's very difficult to do, and I don't mean that in a way to discourage people, but just that people need to understand what they're getting into when they want to do this. It's easier to say you're doing collaborative work and come and go from your workplace and um, maintain an academic distance. Uh, That's not what we're doing here and that's not what I've done in my market project um, here in Rochester. It's because it's all about the relationship, the relationship has to be real. And that means that you have to be yourself and open yourself up. It, it means opening yourself up for heartbreak. Um, one of the things that I've found, at, and I, I, don't know, I haven't had a chance to talk to Dan about this yet, but um, the, the, the percentage of chronic and complex trauma that our students come to East with is Probably it's probably 80% of the population experiences chronic and complex trauma, and um, teachers have secondary trauma. So if you you know because teaching is an act of love, and you open your heart, you love the students, and you find that their lives, their, the struggles they have are are certainly for me uh, more than I understood or understanding from an academic distance way is not the same thing as working every day with kids who come in um, hungry or any number of other issues. And I, and I have been trying to bridge this line of, you know, you do, I don't want the nar- narrative about urban kids to always be about stuff that's wrong because there is a, they are amazing young people and, and, their family, you know, there's many, many strengths, but I, I'm realizing I can't quite ignore that they also live with trauma, and they bring that trauma to school. So that's that's the heartbreaking part is, and that you don't, when you do this work, you have to um, stay even when that happens. You can't get, oh, no, it's too much, and go home to your comfy house and your refrigerator full of food. You need to stay and show up again and again and again. And um, I think the I'm, I'm really wanting to push the engaged scholarship idea to move beyond uh, these sort of ideas of partnership um, 
to working alongside in a Prairian sense, and that means like Prairie did with the leadership campaigns, and um, you have to live with the people. And I recognize that because I have sabbatical this year, I get to do that here at East, and that's not that's rare and doesn't always happen. But um, even last year when I still had my full-time job and was chair of my department and teaching and everything, I still was here majority of the time. So I think it's doable, but it's, it's more work, I think, than um, people might understand going in. I, I think I also have a very similar question for Dan, too. Um, you have extensive work in, in partnering and working alongside in order to do good in the world. And our... Um, our audience typically for this podcast is a group of writing and literacies educational researchers. And, um, and so I'm wondering what, what it is, what lessons you have taken from this work that you're in right now that you would want to pass on to that kind of an audience, an audience of educational researchers who, who also want to do good. Oh boy. That's a big question. <laughs> it's a big question. I, I'm always, concerned about how I come off too. like I don't want to come off like I'm an expert I've been doing this for less than a full year but I think that just having an open mind is the biggest thing Um, a lot of these students come in with their own set of values and their own set of ideas and sometimes our first instinct is to say oh no that's wrong Hmm. no like if somebody hits you, hitting them back is not always the best solution. And, you know, but you don't want to come off as dismissive of things that are important. And you don't want to come off as, well, I know best, and that must mean that you don't know. So I would say, yes, having an open mind, seeing what the students come in with and working with that. I mean, coming from a constructivist standpoint, recognizing their assets, not their deficits, is important, certainly, but not to the point where you want to just dismiss the things that they are struggling with. You also need to be pragmatic, too. Um, a lot of our own ideals that we come to education with need to be tempered with patience and, uh, you know, to to use some teacher jargon, scaffold it up to. We're trying so hard to radically adjust the course of education in this country and in this school as sort of a microcosm, but it's not going to happen overnight. So we've got to be very conscientious of what things we push for from the get-go, what things we can lay the groundwork for for in the future, and what ideas we might just not be able to do. But that being said, I also don't want to come off as, you know, that something can't happen because with the right people, with the right team, we can accomplish a lot, and we are accomplishing a lot. It's just a matter of patience, open-mindedness, and pragmatism. Can I build on that? Because I think that the other thing is um, I've noticed, uh, I've certainly learned pretty quickly that um, academic discourse is a, a an, the discourse community of academic researchers, especially in literacy, is not the same as the discourse community of teachers, and certainly not the students, right? So simple things like um, expecting e- email responses 
you know, the use of email or um, uh, I, 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 the meetings happen, they're, they're like 15 minutes and um, it's like, what do you want? What do you want me to do? Bye. Right? There's not a presentation. There's not a theoretical framework. You know, it's like it, it's it's the pace is different. So it's and I think that it's very important for researchers coming in to do this kind of work is to, like Dan said, be patient, but also um, stay stay back a bit. And and we need to be better, I think, as researchers at respecting the knowledge and experience of the teachers. Um, it, we may not think the same way about it, and uh, you know, like I see lots of uh, no answer questions. I see lots of worksheets. There's lots of stuff I want to change. But if I came in and go, oh, you're answering no answer questions, you know, then they're going to say, you know, who the hell are you? And so it's again about that relationship. At the conclusion of our conversations with these two teams, we zoomed out to think about the upcoming annual meeting. Yeah, as you talk about your work there at East, um, I really feel like it's really an embodiment of the theme this year from AERA, which is public scholarship to educate diverse democracies. And um, yes. I'm thinking about that, um, how you see, how can you see educational researchers who are doing writing and literacies, how might they enact that ideal of research that strengthens public public education. How can we take that on? I, that, that, that's a tough one, Anna. Um, I think we have to be out of the university, in the community. Um, I think, you know, documenting and talking about the literacies that people use um, not thinking about the students, the urban students in particular, as not being capable of doing stuff, not measuring them by a test score, um, to, uh, you know, valuing what they do bring. They have, I've just, and I'm not surprised because, of course, they're kids and they're great, but marvel at the intuitive, innovative, creative ways they use literacy all over the place that we don't document as as researchers. But I think we should, it, we sort of do. Some some people are doing it, but but not that much. And a lot of the research on new literacies even is in with white middle class kids, right? So the kids that we're working with, they're, they're, once again, their practices will get measured against a, a white norm. So I think, you know, being in communities where there's the highest need and recognizing how um, important the literacies they do have are and um, and not and not giving up on public education uh, and and committing to doing the work to 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 clean it up yeah and I feel like Joanne already touched upon this but it takes a village <laughs> it takes a village and to just separate out, you know, this is higher education, this is public education, they're different. I, I don't think that that model necessarily is going to benefit us as we move forward into our, you know, multifaceted futures. We need to understand that we're, we're all community, we're all in this together, and if we continue to 
just aggregate those two bodies, then it's it's not going to be for anybody's benefit. And we have amazing teachers at East. Really, like the chef that just was in here, you know, um, who've been here forever, who have amazing practice and dedication and love for students that I'd love for literacy researchers and, and this sort of public scholarship piece highlight how um, well urban public education can be done. And at our presidential session, it's going to have, we'll have the superintendent, the principal, a teacher, me, two, I mean, two university researchers, and three students and their parents um, talking about what we're doing. Um, and so thinking about that um, as we close, what, what kinds of ideas do you have about what educational researchers interested in writing and literacies might be able to do next? What do you see coming up um, and how we can enact that ideal? Wow, that's a great question. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I think, well, a, a few things come to my mind. How do we enact that ideal? If we're committed to public scholarship, to educate diverse democracies. I think first we have to begin to understand what we mean when we talk about diverse democracies. You know, who constitutes diverse democracies? And are, are we talking about democracies in a global context or in a local context? And then once we connect public scholarship, you're absolutely right. It's not just how do I make my work visible or public. I think that's a byproduct of what we do, but at the center of this idea of public scholarship is as you said, living this work and breathing it and being present in it and understanding that there are multiple ways to engage in research so long as we're not using deficit perspectives by which to talk about or talk against who people are and how people live their lives in their various communities. I also think that a part of this public scholarship has to be we have to reject monolingualism. It is not just that Everyone has to speak one language. No, we are diverse people in a diverse democracy, and we have diverse linguistic, intellectual, historical, and cultural practices that need to be honored in all of our different spaces, whether we're in schools and or in communities. And then finally, for me, I think when we think about the future of educational research and we think about public scholarship, decolonization comes to mind, and decolonizing educational research from its traditional confines of having to honor and frame itself within Western Eurocentric perspectives and really understanding the importance of decolonization and thinking about people of color, thinking about indigenous perspectives and histories, thinking about who we all are in these diverse democracies if we're really committed to living this scholarship and honoring the legacies of people who oftentimes are not honored in our scholarship and media in the world, and we have to do the work. And I think doing the work and being present in doing the work and rejecting these deficit perspectives would get us a really long way. And I just have one last comment, though, that, you know, the, the greatest gift we have are our public institutions, whether it's higher ed or whether it's elementary or secondary, because our schools are really a microcosm of this democracy. Um, and so they don't all necessarily look alike, but there are, there are 
there are these microcosms that look like all of us and um, wherever we are. So if you're in an urban, it, it may be different from what might be in suburban Columbus, but it is that, that particular democracy. And it's wonderful that we still have that in our schools. Uh, as much as we have a lot of this testing and all that, that is still where we learn to be a democratic people. And so we have to make sure that that we maintain that and, and the research is really important that, you know, to help us to maintain that, that it doesn't become something that is not a true micro, a microcosm of our society. What a beautiful way to, to end, end the call. <laughs> that was so powerful. We would like to thank Dr. Valerie Kinlock, Ms. Rhonda Johnson, Dr. Joanne Larson, and Daniel Hart for their time and insight today in our podcast. Now we encourage you to join in on the conversation. You can follow the Writing and Literacy SIG on Twitter at at Writing Lit or on Facebook in the AERA Writing and Literacy SIG group. We will be continuing this conversation in both spaces by using the hashtag WritingLitChat. <laughs>